Welcome to another edition of our Six Questions podcast. I'm Trent England. Thank you so much for being here with us as we start the uh, the new year, 2023. Some big fights over the electoral college and our election systems, uh, but also some uh, some interesting things going on in places like Davos. We're going to talk about that and uh, other topics today with Michael Bostach. He is the managing editor of the Daily Caller, a, a great journalist. Uh, reporting on things uh, in Washington, D.C. and around the country and around the world. Michael, uh, welcome to Six Questions. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, Trent. So first of all, uh, you know, simple question. You're the managing editor at The Daily Caller. Um, what what role does a media organization like The Daily Caller uh, play in in bringing balance to the media landscape? And, and just, you know, put in a, a good plug for The Daily Caller because you guys do great work. Yeah, so I, I'm the managing editor of the Daily Caller News Foundation, which is the nonprofit part, uh, nonprofit organization that's the sister org of the Daily Caller. And what we do is, you know, we do original reporting and investigative reporting, and we also have a journalism training program. So we train young journalists, give them, arm them with the tools to be the best in the biz, and then they usually get hired by other places from, you know everything from like, we've had people go to the New York Times, Fox, um, CBS, uh, all over the media landscape. Uh, It just speaks to the quality of our training program here. But aside from the training program, like reporting wise, where we fit in is one, we're just covering stories that a lot of people in the legacy media, um, I don't call them mainstream media anymore, because frankly, like, you know, we're mainstream. You know, we are, we, we are, we get, we have millions of readers. People really like our stuff. Um, so the legacy media, the corporate media, we cover the stories that they don't want to cover. And we also find, so, and we're not just looking, covering what they want to cover. We find the gaps in their coverage. And we look to see, especially like, how is their spin on the story, the honest are they being honest? Are they being truthful? Are they representing the whole picture of what's going on? Um, and frankly, it's been a great, it's been a great niche for us. We also do our own like enterprise reporting and obviously cover breaking news, much like every other outlet out there to stay competitive. But uh, yeah, I think that our, our a big reason people come and read us is because they know they're getting news that the main, that, sorry, not the mainstream media, the uh, corporate media is not telling them. And that's just been, that's been a big selling point for why people come to our site. Yeah. I think there's, there's maybe no area in media that is, uh, you know, when it comes to the legacy media, at least more skewed than climate change, which is a big focus of your writing. So where did that interest come from and what's it like being, uh, somebody on the, you know, conservative and, you know, in terms of media, just sort of balanced side of things, who's writing about an issue that gets so, uh, you know, so skewed toward the alarmist side. Yeah, it, it is. Re- and each year it becomes more and more skewed it, to the point where it's just you can't even you look at the reporting and you know, you're just being you're being misled about what the science actually says. Um, you know, I started doing this a little over a decade ago. Um, my, my boss, um, asked me, I, I had no experience in energy or 
climate. I was a political science major in college. Um, I had just started journalism. He asked, you know, you know, fracking is becoming a big deal. Do you want to cover like energy for us? And so it kind of started with that. And the more I covered, the more I realized that climate was the thread that underpinned all of the left's energy policies. That was the centerpiece. It was all about the climate and cutting emissions and, and uh, ending fossil fuel use in the United States and also globally, which is, you know, the goal of the, the, the creatures that inhabit Davos. Um, and so from that, I, I just started to think, well, I should really look into the science and see what it's actually saying. And I, the more I looked and the more I talked to scientists, you know, of all persuasions, the more I realized that the left is pushing this like needless alarmism where, you know, the science doesn't really justify it. And the, the, where you see it the most is on with extreme weather. Every weather event is quote unquote made worse by climate change or has the fingerprints of climate change on it or is a harbinger of what's to come. You know, it's, and, and the fundamental fact is with or without climate change, bad weather will still occur and you will still get worse events than we get today. Um, it, but they, what they don't tell you is that over the last hundred years, we've seen, we've become massively resilient to extreme weather. The extreme weather damage from like hurricanes and other extreme weather events, extreme climate events has, as a percentage of our GDP has gone way down. So we're building more, we're wealthier, we're healthier, and we're taking less damage from storms and other violent climate events. Also, the number of people dying globally, this is true in the United States and globally, has gone down something like 90 plus percent. So we, the climate is, despite all the hype about, you know, the weather is getting more extreme, we seem to be getting safer. So there is a massive disconnect in, um, you know, what, what, what they're saying, the narrative they're spinning and versus the reality. You know, you're much less likely to die of a storm or a flood today than you were 50, 100 years ago. It's just... You know, you hear, you read about these old floods and, you know, out West or even, even on the East coast where thousands of people would die, hundreds of people yeah. would die. That, if that happened today, that would be an anomaly. That would be like, people would be prosecuted for that kind of thing. You know, it, it's, it, it would be lead, it would be the biggest story of the year. Um, but it really doesn't, unfortunately people still do die and we should take extreme weather events very seriously. And we do. And and our ability to, to anticipate them has grown a lot, which from forecasting, which um, is one of the reasons we're so resilient. Um, so that, that's just one example of, you know, kind of the disconnect between what the, what the uh, corporate media is reporting and what the truth, the actual science and the, his, the historical trends have shown. So connected to that, question number three, Michael, the, the World Economic Forum at Davos is going on right now as we record this. Um, what what effect do they have on climate policy, particularly in, in the U.S.? I mean, is it something to worry about or are these just, you know, is this just a bunch of hot air? Um, I think it is something to worry about in the sense that this is where they come together Get, gather every year to put their heads together to find out how to make energy more expensive 
for the rest of us and reduce our standard of living. I think that it is important to pay attention what happens and was talked about at Davos. It's not always super surprising what they talk about. You know, you have John Kerry goes there and he talks about how great China is and how the U.S. needs to reduce its emissions. That's what he always does. That's what we expect. They make big policy announcements there. But, but the big thing is like listening to the CEOs talk about what they're doing in terms of ESG, um, which is, you know, environment, uh, social and governance investing, which is why you get a lot of banks and um, uh, pension funds and investors like BlackRock uh, trying to divert capital away from the oil and gas industry um, and towards renewables. I think it's important to pay attention to what happens there because what they discuss inevitably trickles down to policymaking in the United States. So they're not always the catalyst of all the ideas, but they're a, they're a forum for them to come, put their heads together, brainstorm, uh, get, build consensus about what needs to be done, and then send their little Davos minions back on their private jets, back to their countries where they can implement these policies. And so, you know, you saw uh, in terms of, I don't know if you remember the story, but the, the Dutch government basically implementing policies that would put thousands of farms, that would force yeah. thousands of farmers out of business. It caused massive protests across Europe um, as, as farmers across Europe showed solidarity with the Dutch. They were dumping manure, spraying manure on the capital and uh, <laughs> dumping manure onto highways. These, and parking their tractors in to cause massive roadblocks because they were, they were pissed and by they had every right to be a lot of those ideas about reducing emissions from farming, you know, had their Genesis at places like Davos and the United nations and these international forums. Yeah. So question number four here, Michael, one thing that we see in the U S is that in pursuit of some of these climate policies, you know, based on this alarmism, if we don't get this done, we're all going to die. We see a lot of attacks on the Constitution, on things like the Supreme Court, the Senate, the Electoral College, obviously close to our heart here at uh, at Save Our States. What, I mean, what do you think about all of that? I'm always curious, do, do the folks making those claims, do they really believe it? Or is it just sort of the same folks who are trying to tear down our constitution anyway, or, you know, maybe there's sort of common cause. This is a way for the left to, to kind of build their coalition. you got the climate folks and the, the folks who want to, you know, radically alter our constitutional structure sort of coming together saying, you know, we all agree that we should tear these institutions down. I, what do you think about all that? I definitely think they're working in common cause with a lot of these other groups that, you know, the usual suspects that you'd yeah. expect. Um, you hear that they repeat a lot of the talking points on you when it comes to any of our institutions from the courts to the electoral college about how they're racist institutions, yada, 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 unfair. They, you know, not real democracy, whatever else they want to, whatever the talking points are. I think for the environmental movement, what they've been very good at doing is finding the weaknesses in our system and exploiting them to get their policies passed. So if you remember in the Obamacare debate, you know, Pelosi said, if we can't get over the fence, we're going to go under the fence. We're going to go. So that's what they do. So if they can't get their policies through the legislature, 
They wait until they have a friendly executive, so in this case, President Biden, and they go through the regulatory system. And if they can't get through the regulatory system, they try to use the courts. Now, the courts have been particularly unfriendly in terms of a lot of the climate policies they want to get passed because, shocker, they contravene our laws in the United States. And um, so the Supreme Court stopped the EPA's Clean Power Plan. There's this lawsuit going around where environmentalists rounded up a bunch of kids who are claiming they have a right to a stable climate. And I'm sure you heard about it. Um, yeah. They're exploiting kids who are, weirdly, the kids aren't even kids anymore. They're all like adults because it's been going <laughs> on for so long. Um, and they're trying to get the courts to say, yeah, you have a right to a stable climate. And they can't even get the Ninth Circuit to say it. So if, if that's the case, then... Uh, then you're probably not going to have much success. Yeah, if you're on uh, the left and you've lost the Ninth Circuit, you've uh, <laughs> you've got exactly. nowhere else to go. <laughs> you know, even even liberal justices, I think, aren't going to go that step because they realize this would be a massive upending of our system of government. I don't. I think even the even a lot of the leftist jurists aren't there to. They're, they're there to you know, in some cases, rubber stamp leftist policies, but they're not there to completely undermine the judiciary and overhaul the system in a, in a way that would, you know, new, like neuter the legislature and things like that. Yeah. And I, I wonder too, with folks on the left, I think I find this with some of my friends who are, are more on that side that, you know, like with things like CRT or, or, you know, some of these other weird cultural issues where, a lot of the people on the left, like they, they won't disagree with, with the zeitgeist, but, but personally, privately, they think some of these folks are, are going too far. And I wonder if you get that on climate where, you know, even some of these justices and folks who we might disagree with, you know, nine times out of 10, they still recognize that some of this climate alarmism is, uh, you know, is is really pushing policies that are more harmful than good. Even even if the even if the premises are right, I I, I think I um, let me let me jump to our question number five. This uh, uh, shifting gears a little bit, we see rank choice voting uh, spreading around the country. A huge push for this. And, uh, you know, part of the the strategy, I think, at least in some of the Northeast states, has related to sort of using Green Party, you know, far left parties as as ways to get out the vote for Democratic candidates. Uh, but we also see a lot of opposition to RCV. What what do you think about this system and why? I mean, do you have a theory on why we see this being pushed so hard right now? Yeah, I do. It's because. RCV, uh, you know, ranked choice voting is how you keep minority parties and upstart candidates from winning races. So, you know, you have it, the system in Alaska where, you know, Lisa Murkowski can still win an election despite, you know, not getting the most votes, from, not getting the most votes. So, you know, you, it, it's a, it's a system that's spreading. You see it spreading, it's particularly in, in liberal states. And it's a place where in liberal states, they see it as a way to make sure Republicans never get elected or the wrong Republicans. Yeah. That's, that's kind of my theory. Maybe, maybe I'm giving them too much credit. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, they certainly flipped a congressional seat in, in Maine from R to D. And as yep. you say, they, you know, they they altered the outcome in Alaska. So, I mean, it certainly certainly looks like they're achieving some of that. 
Michael, our, our final question on six questions is always the same for first time guests. We're so, uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, the, the question is, who is your favorite founding father and why? You know, I, I was reading that question and I was like, man, this is a t- this is actually a tough one because there are so yeah. many good ones to choose from. I would just have to go with um, the one of the obvious ones. I think my favorite has always been Thomas Jefferson mm-hmm. because one, you know, the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. I think it's really hard to be that there is no other document that sums up what America is about than that document at least the preamble in a lot of ways. And those words are so powerful and they've affected so many other, I don't think there really is a document that is another document besides maybe Magna Carta and some of these other ones that is so foundational that like other governments, other revolutionary governments from communists to like right-wing governments have used that, used those words as like a foundational principle of their governments. Now, Obviously, the communist governments have a lot of evil things, but you'll see like even leftist governments will like sometimes cite Jefferson. Yeah. And at least that preamble part, because it's so powerful and it's such a powerful idea. I don't think any of our other founders have had that sort of impact on the world. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, aside from founding the United States, of course. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know. The, the most powerful, freest country to ever exist. And um, yeah, I've always liked, I mean, I like, I like a lot. I like Washington a lot. Yeah. I even like John Adams. I know he sometimes gets a bad rap in conservative circles, but I think he's great. Um, well, I think if you, if you live by the pen, right, it's hard to go wrong with, with Jefferson. Right. Uh, I mean, he, you know, yeah. Just going through his writings and the breadth of his writings uh, not to mention the depth of his writings. I mean, it, it, it's it's amazing. The thing, you know, he's sort of, uh, I don't know. I always think he compares, you know, to some of the the Greeks who, you know, people know Aristotle because of his philosophy, but he wrote about natural history and all kinds of other things that, you know, and Jefferson is like that. I mean, he's, you know, he's out there trying to understand agriculture and natural right. history and all these other things at the same time he's creating a country. Yeah. And, you know, he invented the swivel chair, guys, yeah. the swivel chair. You know, he, he was such a, such a like polymath and such a smart person. It's a, he's truly like one of those really impressive people who was a total hypocrite in a lot of things. And that's kind of what makes him interesting too, is he had these brilliant ideas and about how people should live, how government should be run. And personally, he did not abide by a lot of, you know, he was perpetually in debt. He said all men are created equal and, but he owned slaves and um, you know, he was a great inventor and like lover of fine French wines. And, you know, it's, uh, and he, he like in government, he championed frugality and fiscal conservatism and like strong currencies and sound money. And he was, you know, profligate spender, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. you know, personally. And, you know, he was, you know, he didn't like, you know, and, you know, he was like a very canny politician. He was always kind of working behind the scenes. And yeah. him and James, James Madison are a pretty fascinating pair. Yeah. And, uh, like, uh, you know, they basically were like, we, uh, you know, a, a founding principle of America was like, or, you know, one of the things is like, well, we, we shouldn't have like political parties. And then they, what do they do is they go create the first political yeah. party. 
<laughs> and hire opposition researchers. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put out like, you know, they put out like propaganda papers and all this stuff. You know, it's <laughs> it's just like they're they're just fascinating. Like him and I think Madison is probably my second, but yeah. they're both just really fascinating people. I, yeah. You know what? They all are. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. Well, Michael, uh, share with folks as we wrap up here how they can stay in touch with the uh, Daily Caller News Foundation and the Daily Caller in your work. Yeah. So um, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is super easy. It's just at Mike Bastash. Um, I don't write as much as I used to because I'm running the newsroom here, but I definitely try to keep up. Uh, if you all our work is we are a newswire service. So all our work is published on the dailycaller.com, which you can see. We also a lot of it is published on the dailysignal.com and various other websites. Um, and if you want to come directly to our website, you can go to dailycollarnewsfoundation.org. Very good. Michael Vastach, thank you for uh, being a part of our six questions. Managing editor at the Daily News uh, at the Daily Caller News Foundation. Uh, I'll get all I'll get all that right eventually. Thank you so much for being on Six Questions. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And thanks to all of you for watching or listening. Remember to give us a uh, give us a rating, share your thoughts with us, and connect with Save Our States either through our Facebook uh, page or our Facebook group. If you want to get more involved, that's where we organize people to uh, really reach out, contact state legislators in particular. Um, we also do that over email. You can sign up and get a lot more information at saveourstates.com. Until next time, I'm Trent England. Thanks for watching.